the gospel is written so that we may know uh, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. And uh, we started off the year looking at um, the different historical reasons why, whether that be his uh, genealogy or whether that be him fulfilling the prophecies uh, that were laid out in the Old Testament uh, for the Messiah. Uh, then he proved that he was the Messiah uh, through chapters 8 and 9, uh, looking at a series of miracles. So supernatural activity that cannot be explained scientifically uh, to show that he was uh, indeed uh, supernatural. Um, and then chapter 11 and 12, and if you, if you flip back to chapter 12, uh, it becomes so undeniable that at least he's supernatural that those who oppose him come to the opposite conclusion of what we would want. And in uh, chapter 12, verse 24, it says, But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, that is, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And so, unable to deny uh, the power that Jesus had, um, they come to the conclusion that that power wasn't from God, uh, the Father, but from uh, the devil himself. And so what we see in chapter 13, we've been, uh, we spent the last several weeks in chapter 13, is uh, Jesus now focusing on some teaching about what to expect the kingdom to look like, what, what to expect as the disciples go out, as, as Jesus um, uh, dies and is resurrected and goes to heaven, what does this next age look like uh, for the church? And remember, uh, the Jewish people were expecting uh, the Messiah to come, for him to throw out the Romans, um, for him to establish a permanent kingdom, um, and for um, him to immediately judge those who were lost, uh, throw those into the fiery furnace, and establish the kingdom. That will happen, but it, it, it was not going to happen on Jesus' first coming. It, it's going to happen on his second coming. And so we see that happening in Revelation of the scriptures. But the Jews had missed the portions of the Old Testament that talked about a Savior that was going to come and die. And it's there, they just missed it. They didn't want to see it. And so we see, we see that called in the New Testament a mystery. And a mystery was that the Messiah would come, that he would die, and that people other than Jews would end up in the kingdom. Okay? And so he's got to now reorient even his disciples to what does this kingdom look like? What are the next um, 2,000 years or, or 5,000 years look like um, until Christ returns? And so he starts to teach them in parables. And the first parable he teaches is at the beginning of chapter 13 where he talks about the parable of the sower. In other words, you are going to be those who proclaim the word of God. You're going to throw the seed, which is the word of God, and there will be those who reject it. And he classifies those into four, three that reject and one that accepts. So four different categories um, to show them that not all are going to accept the word. But that they are to be faithful sowers of the word. And so we saw that in um, the beginning of chapter 13 in the parable of the soils. He then goes on and talks about in uh, chapter 13, verse 24, the parable of the weeds. And so we saw there where he's talking about a farmer who has put out good seed. Uh, a enemy has come in during the night, thrown weed seed into the, into the same field. 
and the two have grown up together. And the workers, seeing this, want to pull out the weeds. They want to clean it up now. Um, they don't want to wait till harvest, but they want to get rid of the problem now. And so Jesus says, no, wait until the harvest. Let God be the sorting of the weeds from the seed. And the reason that he teaches us this is because we have that same tendency in the church, right? Like, we want to go fix this. Like, we want to go and make sure that we're taking care of the problem right away. And so we want to eliminate the unbeliever from political society, from our church, from every situation, right? We want to be the judge, pass the final judgment now. And what he's saying to us is, that's not our role. You're not the judge, right? So you allow that to happen in the world. Now, not in the church, because we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6 that in the church we are to be discerning. We are to judge within the church. But outside the church, we're not to expect society to live according to the scriptures, to live consistently with God's word. That's just not an expectation and so that we should have. And so he's saying, listen... The world, in the world, there are going to be believers and there are going to be unbelievers and they're going to have to live together until the harvest. And you're just going to have to deal with it, right? And so that is uh, the parable of the weeds and the seed. And then he goes on and talks about the parable of the mustard, mustard, what I call the bush, mustard seed. The mustard seed is a very small seed that starts very small but grows into a very large bush, 15 to 18 feet tall. Um, and so what he's saying is to them, you are, you are soon to be 11, 12, but soon to be 11, who the church will found itself on. So very small number. And not only will you grow tremendously, but the whole world will benefit from your cover. Right? And so he's explaining to them that this is going to start really small, but the church will have great influence and great positive influence in the world, both for unbelievers and believers alike. Right? So that's the mustard seed. And then he talks about the yeast. The yeast, uh, if you think about yeast, the parable of the yeast, you add a little bit to a lot, and it works its way through, but you can't see it moving. Right? It takes time. You can't see it moving. It's somewhat mysterious, and somehow it has influence throughout everything. Right? So you put a little bit of yeast in some dough, you roll it around for a while, and all of a sudden, the dough expands. And so what you see in the dough is a much better bread comes from the fact that this little bit of influence has now spread out throughout the entire world. And so the influence of the church, while growing quietly, will affect everything uh, that it comes in contact with. And so he's trying to explain to the disciples, this is what this kingdom looks like. Not the kingdom you were thinking. It's not going to be me sitting on a throne in Jerusalem and only the Jews being alive and still around. But this is going to be a very different kingdom that's going to be ushered in. And so that's where we get ourselves to chapter 13, verse 44, where he talks about what the kingdom is like. And so now we're going to talk about it on an individual basis. And so he says, the kingdom of heaven, verse 44... Chapter 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has 
and buys a field. And so he gives us this example of an individual who is either wandering through a field or potentially um, he's working for someone who owns the field uh, and he comes upon a treasure. Uh, this would not be actually that unusual in Palestine uh, during the day. Uh, they didn't have banks uh, back then. And so because of the wars, the constant wars, the constant looting, uh, it was quite frequent for anyone of any means uh, to put their means into some sort of container and bury it, because that was the safest place in a private location. But if that person, family, individual group um, was eliminated through war or some other purpose, they never came back to get it, it would be buried where it was, right? And so this actually was somewhat common uh, in the day where someone would come across um, something buried uh, and realize that there was significant value there. Um, and so he's saying, listen, there was this man, he's, he's either wandering through or he is actually working a field for someone else. He comes upon uh, this treasure um, and what does he do about it? Um, so was the man looking for the treasure? He was not. So it appears that he has stumbled upon this in some way, shape, or form. Uh, what, what was the value of the treasure? It was great. Um, significant values there. Um, what was the man willing to do to attain the treasure? He was willing to sell everything. So he goes back, and whatever means he had, whatever value he had, he went and he sells everything in order to raise the price so that he can buy a field and attain the treasure. Uh, Jewish law at the time was essentially a finder's keeper law, right? Um, and so uh, he didn't necessarily even need to buy the field uh, in order to own the treasure, uh, but um, acts in a very, what, what we would consider ethical way, in other words, um, to go and actually purchase the land so that he could uh, attain the treasure. So there's not an ethical question here necessarily uh, with him doing what he was doing. Um, and then we see in verse 45 another similar parable again the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it um, so was the man looking for pearls and the answer in this situation is yes um, he was actually out actively searching he was looking um, for um, precious uh, pearls. Pearls in the time would be the equivalent of what we kind of think of as diamonds. Uh, they were the most valuable jewel uh, available at the time. Um, and so uh, there was a, a wide trade of pearls uh, associated. Uh, and so this man was someone who went out and bought and sold pearls. That was his job. And for whatever reason, um, this particular pearl um, he understood, based on the fact that he had done all of this looking, that this pearl was unique. It was extremely valuable. And what does he do? Rather than just buying and selling, he sells everything, all the other pearls that he has, and he buys the one. Right? And so the difference between this pearls and other, pearl and others, I don't understand the difference between pearls, but apparently because he had done all of this work, because that was what his trade was, he understood that there was dramatic value in this one pearl. And what was he willing to do to attain the pearl? He sold all that he had and bought. So we have these two parables. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Um, 
what are the principles that we see? And so Jesus is saying these two treasures, the pearl and the treasure, are priceless in value. Um, so nothing compares. When found, understood how priceless it is, and willing to give up everything in order to attain. Okay. So that's principle number one. Second, the value of the kingdom is not obvious to the passerby. Right? So interestingly, that treasure had been buried there for years, and that field, the, the value of the field itself, the value of the treasure, the fact that the treasure was there buried, or the fact that this pearl was of great value wasn't obvious to everyone. And so we're going to see that with Christianity as well, right? And then third, the kingdom needs to be sought by the individual. You see these are individuals. Remember, the Jews were thinking, because they were Jews, they were going to be saved. And what he is saying here is, no, just because you're Jewish, or just because you're Dutch, or just because you're Catholic, or just because you're Presbyterian, or whatever the issue, that's not what gets you in. The kingdom needs to be discerned or sought by the individual. And the kingdom is a source of joy, not a burden. You see, um, the, in verse 44, he, in his joy, he goes out and sought, sells all that he has. Right? So think about that. So many times I've had um, people who were looking at Christianity, considering Christianity, say, well, why wouldn't I just wait? Right? If, if it's... If it's that easy, if all I have to do is confess my sins and I can be forgiven and I get eternal life, why don't I just wait? Why don't I just live my live it up on earth now, do whatever I want to do, and then when I get closer to dying, then confess my sins and accept Christ and go to heaven, right? What's the problem? There's two problems with that thought process. What's the first problem? The obvious one. You don't know when you're going to die, right? I mean, so that's a little bit of a problem. But that's actually not the bigger problem. The bigger problem with that thought process is you are assuming that life outside of God's Word is more exciting, more fulfilling, more joyful than life inside of God's Word. Right? And that's the, that's the lie the devil's been trying to tell us since... The fall, chapter 3 of Genesis, is that somehow, some way, the devil is saying, listen, God's keeping something, or yeah, God's keeping something from you. The devil is trying to say, you will have more fun, you will have more joy, you will understand things better, you will be smarter, you will be more prestigious if you live outside of God's word. And the fact of the matter is that is a lie, that you will have greater satisfaction, greater joy, if you live inside of God's will not outside, right? And so you see here in verse 44 that it is with joy that he goes out and sells all that he has. Because he understands that nothing else is of significant value. So there is a source of joy. And then he says there is, well, and then a fifth principle, some will search from it and some will stumble upon it, Right? So you have two different individuals. One is actively searching for pearls. 
So you're gonna have you're gonna have people who are looking at every type of religion trying to figure out what's the right way. They are true seekers. They are looking to figure out why should I believe that Christianity is the right way versus the Islam faith versus Buddhist versus whatever other opportunity is out there, right? So you'll have people who are looking at them. And then you'll have others who have no interest whatsoever who just kind of stumble into it. And all of a sudden it hits them in the face and they realize what it is. And so two different types of people um, who will come to know the kingdom. And then the sixth principle is there will be a cost. Right? There is a cost. Both individuals had to go out and sell all that they had. So think about that a minute. <laughs> they had to sell all that they had. So are they purchasing, are they trying to earn the kingdom? And that's not the point. They have to turn away from what they believe they have to attain what they have. So they have to give up all they have in order to have what God has. And so, uh, if you've got a Bible, turn to Philippians 3. I think it's helpful to see um, in Philippians 3 what Paul is saying here about his conversion. <clears throat> Philippians 3, chap uh, chapter 3, verse 4, the second half of the verse, uh, starting, if anyone. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Right? So he's saying here, he's rebuking those who are trying to earn their salvation um, through their personal capabilities or, or qualifications. Right? And he says to them there, if anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, in other words, to believe they can earn their salvation, that they are righteous enough to be in heaven on their own merit, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. So there was a requirement that all males would be, would be circumcised on the eighth day. And his parents didn't circumcise him on the seventh day or the ninth day. They circumcised him on the eighth day, which is kind of crazy to think about that that was that serious of a deal, right? But circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, right? So he's a Jew. Not only of the people of Israel, but of the tribe of Benjamin. The two favored tribes were the two tribes, the southern tribes, which were Benjamin and Judah, and he was of one of those two tribes. So of the 12 tribes, he was part of the two best tribes. Okay? So understand who, what he's saying here. A Hebrew of Hebrews. He had memorized the first five books of the Bible. So to be a Hebrew, you were to memorize the Old Testament. And he had memorized the first five books of the Bible. This guy's impressive. As to the law, a Pharisee. In other words, no one could point to the law and say that he had violated anything in the law. Like no one had ever witnessed him violating anything in the Old Testament. So a Pharisee. As to zeal, so did he have, per did he have personal passion? Right? As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. In other words, I believe that the church was undermining the Jewish faith and I was so upset about it that I personally went out and persecuted the church. That's how passionate I was 
about earning my salvation. As to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. In other words, again, you can't point to anything that you've seen me do that I shouldn't have done. That's a pretty impressive list, right? And then what does he say? But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may obtain Christ. So he's saying, listen, not only am I not putting any of my trust in any of that, Right? I, can, I consider all of that now rubbish. I, I don't base my faith, my future, my hope on any of that. Not only that, but I have said, I don't want it. I don't want it. I want Christ. Right? And so that's what he's saying in chapter 14, when he's saying that there is a cost. Right? 1 Corinthians 6.20 says you were bought with a price so honor God with your with your body right when you accept Jesus Christ as savior and lord you are acknowledging your sinfulness and need of a savior and now you are submitting to him as savior and lord in other words you're going to follow him you're going to try to fulfill the expectations that he has there is a cost associated with christianity questions on those two things or thoughts. The next section is about the parable of the net. So verse 47 says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full... Men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the second time in chapter 13 that Jesus has talked about weeping and gnashing of teeth in hell. If you actually look at the scriptures you will see, and you start counting the number of times that Jesus talks about hell, he actually talks about hell more frequently than he talks about love. And so for those people out there who run around and try to say that hell isn't real, they're not reading their Bible, right? And so Jesus is saying, listen, there will be a final judgment. There is a heaven and there is a hell. When will it happen? It's not going to happen until the end of the age. So just like we saw in the parable of the weeds, we're not the ones who are going to institute this. God will be the final judge. The angels will come at the end of the age, and they will be the ones who sort out who's going to hell and who's going to heaven. And what will happen to those who reject Jesus? There will be an eternal fire, or there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, body and soul, tormented eternally. That's an uncomfortable conversation to have, right? I mean, we want to believe that that's not the case. Anybody else agree with Packers fans? Oh, yes. Aaron Rodgers was raised in a Christian home, rejected Christianity, 
because he could not accept that a good God would send people to hell. I really like him as a football player, but his theology stinks. He was influenced by an individual from the Reformed Church by the name of Rob Bell. Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins. And essentially what the book says is that everyone ends up going to heaven. Rob Bell's theology stinks. Rob Bell's theology is so bad that he has influenced people in a very negative way to believe that nonsense. That is not the case. There is a heaven. There is a hell. There will be consequences for rejecting Christ. And so you remember this whole section before was people rejecting Jesus and claiming that he was not the Messiah. And this is the ultimate outcome that's going to happen to those who stay there. There will be a fiery furnace, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth eternally. And so don't get caught up into that idea that somehow there's not a hell. So Jesus turns to his disciples and he says in verse 51, have you understood all these things? So he's wrapping the parables now. And we're going to move on from the parables in chapter 14. So he says to them, have you understood all these things? And they say yes. And he said to them, therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is a master of the house which brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. And he's saying to his disciples, you are now ready to teach. You are now the scribe. You are now the one who's going to bring forward not only just what the old understanding of the kingdom was, but the new understanding that I have just given you. Right? So it's good that you understand the Old Testament. You need to understand the Old Testament in light of who I actually am and what I'm teaching you is about to occur. Right? And he's saying to them, you are now ready to teach. And then in verse 53, he says, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get his wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not this the mother? Is not his mother Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all of his sisters here with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many works, mighty works there because of their unbelief. So I ask the question, what, what's the power of unbelief? If you actually look in <clears throat> Luke 4, at more at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus goes into the same synagogue. So remember, he does most of, most of his ministry in Capernaum. He moves around quite a bit, but he does most of, his, um, most of his miracles and everything in Capernaum, which is a little town on the, on the, the Lake of Galilee. Uh, but he's from Nazareth, which is a small town um, in that similar area, but a day's walk away. And so at the beginning of his ministry, he sits down in the same synagogue, in his hometown. And he reads from Isaiah, the prediction of the Messiah. And he said, today you have seen this come to pass. And he sits down. And they drive him out of the synagogue because they know that he just said that he is the Messiah. Right? So this has happened at the beginning of his ministry. 
Now, Jesus hadn't done a whole lot at that point, right? So now fast forward a year to two years, and he's performed all of these miracles. He's healed all of these people. He has done all of this teaching, right? He goes back to the same synagogue, and then what happens? Are they convinced? Have they seen the evidence and gone, wow, we missed it. He really is the Messiah. And the answer is no. He went back to the same place and they still rejected him. Right? Even after everything that he's done. And the fame and the crowds and the miracles and his... And what do they say? They say, isn't this the carpenter's son? Like, wait a minute. The Messiah that we're looking for is royalty. And this is a simple man of simple thought, right? Isn't this his mother Mary? I mean, this is a simple woman. Right? We know his brothers and his sisters. How can this be the Messiah? And even though all the evidence points to the fact that he is the Messiah, they refuse to accept him as the Messiah for reasons that really don't make any sense whatsoever. Like, their expect he just didn't meet their expectations. So it's interesting that the power of unbelief is so strong that even in the midst of amazing evidence, they cannot accept him. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 11. A few years ago, I, we, we went through the Gospel of John and then I, I taught at church um, just an overview of the Gospel of John. Uh, I'm a scientist, so I like evidence, so I, I called it the evidence is clear Jesus is the Messiah. Right? Um, because the Gospel of John is very strong in showing and proving that he is the Messiah. In verse 47 and 48. So remember, uh, verse 38 of chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. So remember, you've got Lazarus, who is a good friend of his. He dies. He's in the tomb for three days. He's, his body is degrading. Jesus comes and he raises him from the dead, right? And no one can deny that Jesus just raised a dead man, right? And so what is the response of the Jews given the overwhelming evidence? Verse 47 of chapter 11, it says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. They're not even denying what he's been doing anymore. Like, they can't deny it anymore. Right? So they say, what are we going to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our name. And let that sink in a little bit. Right? They were so motivated by their own thing, their own power, their own prestige, their own, that even, I mean, the council has the discussion that he's doing all of this stuff. They, they can't deny it. And so they go out and they decide they're going to kill him because they can't have it be that he continues and they lose their place of prestige. And so the power of unbelief is so strong 
that even in obvious, in the face of obvious evidence, there will be those who reject the message. And so what does that tell us in the church? In other words, we, we look back at, in, earlier in um, chapter, uh, I don't remember which chapter it was, um, where it talked about do not throw your pearls among swine. Right? The idea there is don't try to convert someone who has no interest in Jesus. Because they won't. No matter how much evidence you can provide for them, unless the Holy Spirit has come and turned them, they will not accept. And so do not waste your time casting pearls of great value among swine who do not appreciate that fact. And so as a church, remember that there are those who will reject it despite the evidence, and you shouldn't be troubled by that. Thoughts on these parables? So that's the section on parables. The uh, Next week, the rejection intensifies. We see John the Baptist um, martyred, uh, and we move into next year into um, uh, Jesus heading toward Jerusalem to come back for class next year. So, with that idea of um, don't throwing your pearls among the swine, what do you, how do you go about, I guess, if you're wanting to, or trying to witness to someone, a disciple or something along those lines, at what point do you say they're rejecting everything? Because the parable of the soils obviously tells us to throw the seed everywhere because you can't tell what's good soil and what's bad, right? Mm -hmm. So we want to be proclaiming that, Mm -hmm. right? But in the face of rejection, don't. So if they say, and that's nonsense, I'm not interested, don't think that you have somehow failed, that the message has somehow failed, or that you need to continue um, to try to convert that individual. Because that person's individual conversion is not on you. That's the Holy Spirit's got to move in their heart. You're just spreading the seed, right? So we, we had a situation just this week in Elders. Uh, I was meeting with the pastors, and there's an individual who, for the last two or three years, we as a church have been trying to minister to, and just doesn't, has no interest, and needs money, needs shelter, needs, you know, a job, needs, you know. And I, I, did, I finally said this week, um, I think it's time that the church realizes that this is an individual who's not interested. And so there's a lot of patience. I mean, I'm saying we've been spending a long time trying to minister, but there is a point where you go, this person's just simply not interested, and we should not continue. Other thoughts? The kids outside are scouting the donut, so if you want another one before you leave, make sure you get it before you leave. Let's pray a minute. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for how it teaches us and helps us uh, to understand uh, what we are to expect as we go out. And just as the disciples did, uh, trying to understand how they would minister, that we might have that same understanding, that there are those uh, who uh, will reject uh, the message. And no matter what the evidence looks like, they that, that the, the message needs to be accepted as an individual and that there are those who will seek it and there are those who will stumble upon it. We, we thank you for the message uh, of the weeds uh, where we know uh, that we will live amongst 
unbelievers until the end of time, and that's not for us to judge or to worry about um, as, as we walk about uh, in our daily lives. And so, Heavenly Father, help us to respond appropriately. Help us to live according to your word uh, and glorify you and show a joy and a hope uh, that others uh, might see that and be interested in hearing uh, the gospel message. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.